I started interviewing young people for this project on September 20th, 2019, which feels kind of like another lifetime, given everything that's happened between then and now. That was the week when climate activists around the world staged thousands of demonstrations to demand immediate reductions in CO2 emissions. I decided to check out the climate strike in Sacramento. I arrived before the event and found a group of people sorting supplies and talking on the steps of the state capitol building. When I asked if anyone was willing to be interviewed, they pointed me at Supriya. So my name is Supriya. And where do you live? What town? I live in Sacramento, California. Okay, great. And how old are you? I am 13 years old. This episode of Future Imperfect is about paths to engagement in the global movement against climate change. How do young people determine that climate change is a problem that affects them personally? What kinds of actions do they take, both individually and in community with others? And how do they describe the future that they hope for? You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. This episode is about taking action in the global movement against climate change. So I first became aware of climate change when I was 11 and I went to India with my family um, because that's where my family is from. And there was so much air pollution and I have asthma. So it was like the physical manifestation of climate change and I became just really concerned about it afterwards. And so um, is it your understanding that asthma will be aggravated, like that climate change will be bad for people with asthma? Yes, yes it will, especially because of pollution and because asthma is made more prevalent by pollution. Okay, got it. Can you describe for me um, what you think a good future for your generation would look like? It could be either really broad or just like your day-to-day life. I think that a good future for my generation will be one in which we don't have to worry about our futures and one in which reusable energy is the norm and not the exception. You know how there's a difference between knowing something by reading about it and then really understanding it by experiencing it? Yeah, so I had read that youth were deeply involved in planning the strikes. Here is the awkward moment where my abstract knowledge turned into actual understanding. Supriya was very gracious. And have you uh, done things other than showing up for the climate strike today? Have you felt like you knew that there was something you could do or have you been kind of not sure what to do? So I am the founder of the group who's putting on the climate strike, and I'm also national partnerships coordinator at an organization called Earth Uprising. That's pretty incredible. So can you tell me what went into planning this thing? Can you give me some information about that? So we had to, it was like kind of a lot. We had to schedule everything. We had to email speakers, press releases, um, like our strike program, which is like our master document for what everybody's going to say, um, like a lot of conference calls. It was just a lot of work, but it's all going to be worth it. So That's really incredible that you're 13 years old and you worked on that. When did you start on this and how did you get involved in it? So I learned about the global climate strikes last year in December, and I decided that I wanted to organize one in Sacramento. So I organized a really small strike on May 24th, but this one's going to be a little bit bigger. So I've started organizing climate strikes in accordance with the Fridays for Future movement. Got it. And um, I have one last question for you, because I didn't realize who you were when I started asking you this. Um, What kinds of things do you feel like people your age have brought to organizing for this that maybe older people didn't teach you about? So I think that our youth is really 
like powerful because we are standing up and we are saying that politicians need to protect our futures and that corporations need to stop polluting. Um, and I think that just the fact that we're doing this is really powerful because it has shown politicians that the only way to like get them to listen is for children to skip school. And that's something that's really, really powerful. That's great. Um, so I just want to ask you if there's any one last, any, any last thing you'd like to say? Um, yeah, so I'd like to say that, um, to quote Greta Thunberg, the founder of the Fridays for Future movement, you are never too small to make a difference. And just come out and strike with us whenever you can. And your actions do make a difference. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So who answered Supriya's call to action? In the first part of today's show, you'll hear the voices of young people who attended the climate strike. Then, we'll explore in more depth how people make the transition from being concerned about climate change to taking action. I'm Matthew, and I just live here in Sacramento. Okay. How did you uh, hear about this today? Well, you know, I'm always concerned about the environment, you know, especially with all these new fires and stuff. And my friends, they just said, hey, you want to come with us? You know, so I just decided to come, kill two birds with one stone, enjoy time with people and protest for the world. That sounds like a good day. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing day so far. <laughs> Do you remember when you learned about climate change or that when you like decided that it was important for your generation? Well, it happened when I was in actually science class. You know, it was a unit where we were learning about just the environment. And I, I like science myself, so I instantly started talking about by talking to my teacher about like environment domes and how to preserve species and plants with, you know, just replicating that environment. And, you know, we just discussed about it and the problems with it. And, and I understand that you can't really re recreate nature in itself, you know? So you got to preserve the planet as is. I mean, we can create these fake worlds and fake domes but it's not really their world you know so that's just kind of what got me out here and made me aware of climate change and how the world's changing animals are dying and stuff how would you describe a good climate future for your generation um well see i, I thought about this for a while what's a good climate will be good uh and i just noticed that a lot of people always take one side of which to be either be modernized and just entirely kill off the plants or be entirely plant-based and kill the modernized, you know, world. And I just believe that that's not the, that should be the case. I believe that, I mean, I've seen places, uh, you know, just on the internet scrolling around, like places that mix in the environment, like trees and jungle climates with buildings, you know, actually like working together. And I just think that, you know, that will be a lot more of a benefit for not only us, but for the environment too. You know, everyone wins, no one loses. That's kind of my ideal climate. Got it. Thank you. My name is Ilero Carasquillo and I live in the Tomas area. Okay, thank you. Can you tell me about how you learned about this today? I learned about this because my mom actually noticed me only this morning, the day that it's happening. It was, she told everybody else, but I fell asleep last night. So she told me this morning and I decided to tag along and hold up the sign that says, save our future. 16. Do you, do you feel any kind of like concern about it? Or do you have questions about it? Or is it something where you're like, eh, not so worried about it? No, I'm concerned about it because I want to live my life to the fullest. And I don't want to, 
I just don't want it to end too soon. I just want to live my life to the fullest. That's pretty much it. Can I get each of your names? I'm going to start over here. <laughs> Marika. And where are you from? I'm from Roseville, California. I'm Erica, and I'm from Roseville. My name is Nick Lacey, and I'm originally from Missouri, but I live here in Loomis, California. Do you have a moment when you remember deciding or realizing that climate change was an issue that you needed to think about? Uh, I saw a documentary with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he was, <laughs> he was explaining. It was a really good documentary. You guys should check it out. Uh, he was explaining how the environment was affected by all our actions and our commerce and how uh, our vote with our money can affect the climate in big ways. I think it was when we were in the long drought when I realized, wow, this could happen over and over again and we need to do something to stop this. Okay, good. So that was the, the moment for you. <laughs> what you? You're like hiding over here. <laughs> Um, in fifth grade, we had this uh, project that we had to do where we um, had one issue, I guess, that we all focused on and um, worked towards making our community better. And I realized then that I could really do something for climate change. So. Do you remember what your project was? It was about uh, clean water and helping people in Africa build wells. Do you remember when you uh, first realized that it was about you here, not just them there? Um, when we started having a lot of forest fires, well, we've always had forest fires, but they were getting really bad. Um, I have asthma and it was just, there were times when I just couldn't go to practice because I couldn't breathe. And that made me realize like, this is really affecting us right now. Okay, great. Thank you. Do you want to say something else? I have another moment. It was during the same project. My group's project was um, researching uh, colony collapse syndrome with the bees. And that made me realize that if we don't have bees, if we don't have pollinators, then how are we supposed to get vegetables and fruits? And how are we supposed to have any food? Because it comes from plants and pollinators. I think a good future for all of us would be a sustainable environment and a sustainable commerce where things are reused, reduced, and recycled in all ways so that we uh, create the least impact on the environment as possible. Uh, close to a net zero in carbon dioxide would be nice. <laughs> okay. How about you? Do you have a... I, my ideal future would be living zero waste. Um, I would like to not have to use plastic. And now trying to avoid it, trying to live according the, to the zero waste model, it's very difficult. So I would just like that to be easier. And I would like, instead of creating new clothes and going with the fast fashion model, I would like it if people started to shop more sustainably and if secondhand clothing was um, a larger and more available option for people? Um, well, agricultural production uses a lot of water and there's also a lot of food waste right now in the country. I know a lot of my friends, when they buy something from a restaurant, they barely eat any of it and then they don't even take it home with them. And there's a lot of people who don't have enough food to eat and then there's the people who have too much and they just don't eat it when they could and so I wish that well I, I would hope that um, in the future with uh, less food waste it could help
Um, my name is Denisha. I'm from Sacramento. I was born and raised here. Do you know, was there a moment in your life when you realized or decided you felt like climate change was an issue for your generation? To be honest, I'm only 17. It was like when my friends said, hey, don't have kids because in the future, you're just like leading them to death, like at a young age. So like, I mean, for someone to tell you, hey, don't have kids because your world's about to like end, you know, it's kind of shocking because you know you're like I'm planning for my whole future I plan to have kids and it's like I don't have a world that's good enough to put them in because we're pretty much destroying it right now it's not kids in the future are dealing with our crap right now and we have to deal with other people's crap like the people moms and dads and all that stuff my crap uh -huh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um that's a really when when your friend said don't have kids in the future were you shocked like what did you say oh, no I was like Oh, I still want kids, but I don't want to put them in a world that's going to, like, burn. <laughs> what would be a good future, do you think? I mean, I guess somewhere where people are actually able to breathe without having lung problems because of all the pollution. An ocean we can swim in without moving our arm through it and there's a piece of plastic. Um, I guess... I don't know. I guess just, just that, yeah. Just basic good stuff. Yeah, also, like... Somewhere where we not, we're not like hating each other for doing the things we do, you know, like trying to help someone out, if that makes sense. Air quality is already bad. They like they literally have to say on the news, this is when the air is good to breathe. Yeah. And I think that's like it's kind of it's stupid that we've got to that point. It's like it's it's ignorant that we've gotten to that point of like someone having to tell us. Here's a good time to go breathe some air, you know? My first name is Yulin, and we come from Northwest Sacramento. My first name is Jonathan, and we both come from Northwest Sacramento. Do you have a moment when you came to realize that climate change was an issue for your generation? I think it was more of like a slow process. I always knew what was happening, but I was too young to comprehend the, like how severe it was. Then I slowly, as I grew up, I began to learn more and more of it and how much it, we were in danger. And then it just kind of happened that I realized I need to take charge. I need to stop this. Got it. How about you? I also realized that the earth, how rare it is. Like, life is very rare. For all we know, there's nothing else like it. So what I want is that the earth has already existed for billions of years. And over the times, life evolved on it. And it has been here for thousands and thousands of years, especially, um, especially human civilization. So I really want to preserve this for future generations. Got it. What would a good future for your generation look like? Well, definitely one that doesn't have climate change. But a good future would probably be one where everybody can live happily with free speech, democracy, so on, so on. But obviously, any sort of like greediness that comes from like corporate entities should not be tolerated as much as it is now. I just hope, I mean, the world is never going to be a pure place because there's always some evil in this world, but we can always try to improve. And I think that perfection is never within reach, but we still need to try. One last question, because I forgot to ask you, how old are you? I'm 14. I'm also 14. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm Natasha and I'm 19. Did you ever learn about this in school? And if so, in which classes do you know? Um, yeah, I actually learned about climate change a lot in my geography class. My teacher taught me a whole lot about 
just the world in general. I had some agoraphobia about being out of the country and even my space in general, but um, she was really informative on current issues, including social and also, you know, climate issues are a big one. It's even wrapped up in a lot of social issues as well. Um, and when you talk about any sort of native animals and stuff like that, that gets brought up because obviously we're doing damage to a whole lot of different environments, not just any one particular, but the entire planet. Can you describe what would a good future look like for your generation? Um, productive steps, right? They were talking about, somebody was talking about getting white pavements or um, solar panels on the top of buildings and things like that. Just something to, you know, I don't have an immediate answer for reversing, but definitely just utilizing less damaging resources in general um, and causing less excess of damage. Obviously, it's better and easier to slow than to work backwards from, but that would be a significant step if we could see that in all of our cities, at very least, in places where it's the biggest issue, power and heat are the biggest issues. Um, definitely that would be a big step. I'm Sarah, I'm 20 and I'm from Fair Oaks. I'm Selena, I'm 19 and I'm from Fair Oaks. Great. And how did you uh, hear about this today? Uh, through the internet, there's lots of posts and everything just about that there, there was organization happening. So I went onto a website and clicked and found out where one was happening close to me. Yeah, social media for sure. I have a lot of like the mailing list activism from old protests that I've gone to. So I got a couple of emails and I was definitely interested. So this is not your first protest? No, <laughs> definitely not. When you, uh, when you were doing that, did you also engage in local government in other ways? Was protest your primary way or did you also do other things? I'm not critiquing, I'm just asking. We actually, I mean, I think it's still a form of protest, but for one of the um, gun control walkouts, we actually came here with a bunch of people from our school, wrote a letter on the steps, all signed it, and then walked in and handed it to um, somebody and asked them, we like researched who would be best to receive it and then asked them to give it to them. And I don't know if it reached them, but I know for us it felt like we were making maybe a little bit more than just standing on the steps screaming. Was there a specific incident that where you kind of had the penny drop moment where you're like, oh, climate change is a big issue for us? Or did it sort of slowly creep up? Uh, I had a big drop because my first term of college, I signed up to take an environmental law class with a uh, professor who's actually working on the Juliana versus the United States case. Uh, so I had already knew, known that climate change was a big issue, but taking that class and reading all of the material on how truly bad and what an uh, awful situation we were in was really eye-opening. The Juliana case is really interesting. In 2015, a group of 21 young people aged 8 through 19 and an organization called Earth Guardians filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government. They allege that the U.S. government agencies, quote, deliberately allowed atmospheric CO2 concentration to escalate to levels unprecedented in human history, end quote, and that by doing this, they had threatened the young plaintiffs' rights to life and liberty. As of now, the case is still ongoing. So give me a description of what you think a good climate future would look like. I mean, like, I don't have all the answers, I don't have all the research, but I think a good place to start would be if corporations could start valuing long, like, long-term thinking over money. Like, yeah, money's great, whatever, we live in a capitalist society, but um, it's not going to be worth it if the earth and all of us are dead in, you know, 20 years, then what is all that money for? I think it's kind of time to stop prioritizing money and start prioritizing, like, making the earth live longer. Like, yeah, maybe you won't make as much profit, but, like, also, you'll save the earth. I really don't understand how that isn't 
already how things are. And I think that would be a good first step because unfortunately corporations do affect the earth like hugely. And so even if that, if only they made that step, we could slow down climate change incredibly. My name is Quintasia and I live in Sacramento. What would you like it to be like when you're an adult? I would like it to, I don't know if that's possible because this world is fucked up, um, but I would like it to be a better place. You know, we need to take care of our planet. We live here. So like, I mean, if we don't take care of the planet, we're going to be dead. Like, it's just common, common sense. So I would like it to be a better place, you know. Yeah, we need to be better people. Our government, our government knows what's going on. Do they care? No, because money is power. So I think they have a solution for themselves instead of from all of us. And why do we have to sit out here and protest this? Why they need this is their job, right? So they need to be doing what they're they like. This is their job. They need to do their job. Annika Patel. I grew up in Fairfield, California. Uh, I'm Kyle Kruger, and I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm Emily Patterson, and I grew up in Camarillo, California. Can you tell me the thing that you remember that made you realize or decide that you thought climate change was an issue for your generation? Um, I was lucky enough that in seventh grade, my earth science class was, um, we had like an entire unit dedicated to global warming, and we watched the documentary Six Degrees Could Change the Planet, and I think as a little seventh grader, my main takeaway was just that um, I was really upset because it seemed like a pretty straightforward problem. Obviously, it's really complicated, but we have um, actual solutions. Like, we know what's causing climate change, and we know what we have to do to stop it, um, and so I was kind of appalled as a little kid that like the grown-ups weren't doing what they knew they could be doing to put climate change to an and, um, and so I think that's why I'm so really passionate about it, because it's one of those things where we know what we need to do. We just need to start doing it. So I'm, I'm more of like a numbers-based gal. I like facts, and I'm pretty analytical. So when I learned in ninth grade that we are only just now feeling the effects of industrial actions taken in the 1970s, that's, that's the climate change effects that we're seeing right now. That was kind of the moment where I realized like, okay, something needs to happen at the institutional level to make sure that in 2040 we're not going underwater, you know? So I think that was kind of the jarring moment that I realized that, you know, we need to stand up and make a change. I think, uh, I think I, I, when I was first introduced to it, you know, it's, it's this, this the idea that like, oh, the polar bears are going away. And, but over time you realize it's, it's just a, it's a huge national security issue. Uh, it's a huge food security and it's really the poverty and, and you know, it, it touches all these aspects of the human condition and uh, it, it's unlike a lot of issues that you might strike for because the, the solutions are, are really complex. There's a lot of really good debates to be had on climate change and I think that there's, there's probably people here who are on opposite sides of some of those debates. So you might debate like uh, carbon tax versus, versus direct regulation. You might debate the merits of nuclear power versus not nuclear power. Um, so I think that it's really cool that we're standing in unity and saying this is the debate that we have to have and, and you know, individual action is really, really powerful and, you know, what you eat and, and maybe how often you fly a plane, those are really important parts of it. Uh, but far more important is, is what, you know, the government does and, and so it, it's really appropriate that, you know, we'd be striking in, in such large numbers and such unity to, uh, to call on the government to look at, uh, you know, methods for change and to, to safeguard future generations. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thank all of you. That was a small sample of the hundreds of people who showed up that day. As you just heard, 
They had unique stories, but they also all had two things in common. First, each of them had realized that climate change is going to affect everyone, everywhere on Earth. And second, they had all decided that making individual changes to their behavior or consumption wasn't enough. As Kyle noted, individual action is helpful. But the real goal is getting government to change both its own practices and to use its lawmaking power to change the carbon-emitting behaviors of large companies. So why do young people make this transition from individual changes to taking part in collective action? How? Let's start by looking at individual changes. For Rade in Livermore, this was a family affair. We recycle. We have, you know, a recycling bin, an organics bin. We had solar panels installed. My dad is getting an electric car. We have, you know, Gold Star appliances. We're, you know, making a lot of changes, but at the same time, I can sleep at night. It's, you know, not impacted my lifestyle involuntarily yet. So, Rude told me his mom led a lot of these changes in the family. They're recycling materials, but they're also buying new technologies that reduce their day-to-day use of fossil fuels. You may also have noticed that these are some big-ticket items. Not every family can afford an electric car or solar panels. But even if they could, it wouldn't fully solve our problem. A million electric cars clogging the highways at rush hour is definitely better than a million gasoline-powered cars, but it's still a scene from a very energy-intensive society. Getting to a carbon-neutral world will require using less energy-intensive tools to go about our day-to-day lives, but it's also going to require some changes in those day-to-day lives. And what about all the families who can't afford those new appliances? Just about every young person I interviewed told me about some way they're trying to respond to climate change through their personal behavior. Here are Faith in Fountain Valley, Nadine in San Rafael, and Amber in San Diego. For example, there's this website called Ecosia, where every time you do a search, um, a new tree is planted. And so, and so I use that. I have that on my phone and I have that on my computer. And so that, that, that's just like a little thing that always makes me feel a bit better because I'm like, I'm doing my part, it feels like. I do cut as much plastic out um, so that we can at least have somewhat of a more cleaner planet. Um, but when it comes to weather and climate change, I there I really do feel like useless. I can't do much. Well, I am especially fascinated in like consumerism. So like thrifting has become like a big like trend. And I think that's great because we really need that, like not buying as much fast fashion and stuff. And so I do that. I like thrift and stuff because I think it's fun and cool and stuff. And we have like good spots around here. A rule of thumb for myself is that if I need to use the freeway, I'll use my car. Um, And if I don't need to, I'll try to be eco-friendly and use my bike. Do you have any questions you'd like to pose for the climate scientist I'm working with? I want to know which aspect of, like, which action I can take in my daily life will have the greatest effect on like doing my part to be aware and conscious about climate change. Like I want to know whether me really being a stickler for using plastic straws has as big of a a difference as maybe choosing to bike instead of drive that day. I want to know how I can maximize my efforts towards um, protecting the environment. My collaborator on this project was Nancy Freitas. She's working on her PhD at UC Berkeley with a focus on climate science. I brought the question to her. 
Amber was the person who I think framed the question about um, what is the thing she could do mm-hmm. that would be most impactful. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you if you also struggle with that question. Yeah, I definitely do. I know that personally, the largest component of my carbon footprint is transportation. And that is true for most people who who live in the US and a lot of people who live in California. And so ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint in that way are taking the bus more often, taking public transportation if it's available to you, riding your bike, reducing the amount of time that you you know, commit to being on the road or commit to traveling places. And that's hard when we want to do things like, you know, go see our families in different states or drive to the mall. So that's that's one thing um, that I struggle with, but that I think can make a large impact. And then the other thing that um, a lot of students have been relating to climate change is plastic consumption and plastic use. And I know that I personally am trying to reduce my my carbon footprint by reducing the amount of plastic that I use and the amount of fossil fuels that go into production of plastics. Many of the young people I spoke to had changed their behaviors in order to try to lower their carbon footprints, which is the amount of CO2 their personal activities generate. But they also sometimes struggled with those same feelings of uselessness that Faith described. And this is worth delving into. Are individual actions pointless or do they matter? First, let's establish the scale we're talking about. And we'll take plastic as an example. Almost every piece of plastic in the world comes from fossil fuel. The materials to make different plastics come from a combination of crude oil, coal, and natural gas. Each stage in the production and use of plastic emits greenhouse gases. In 2019, according to the Center for International Environmental Law, making plastics, transporting them, using them, and managing plastic waste generated 850 million metric tons of greenhouse gas. Now, if you're like most people, you just heard that number, 850 million metric tons of greenhouse gases, as a big but basically meaningless number. Let me try to make it more concrete. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, Americans use about 100 billion plastic bags each year. That does not include the rest of the world, and it does not include any other plastic packaging. So it's just a small portion of the plastic generating those 850 million tons of greenhouse gases. But still, 100 billion bags per year. How many is that? It's about eight plastic bags per day, every day, for every one of the 330-odd million people in America, including babies. Also, that 850 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions for global plastic production, that is less than 2.5% of total greenhouse gas emissions for a single year. So when we think about it by the numbers, one person reducing their own plastic bag use has an infinitely tiny effect on emissions. But maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. Are there other ways to think about the value of individual behavioral changes? I'm of the mindset that small changes do make a difference. And do I think reusing or using a reusable straw solves climate change? No. Um, And I think we need to be really clear about that. That, that that change alone is not going to do it. But what that change can do is it can shift a mindset. And if today I decide to use a reusable straw and I talk to the people around me about what that reusable straw signifies and 
then I switch from using a reusable straw to re- using a reusable water bottle or bringing my own cup to you know coffee shops. And I'm able to work with the people around me to bring these issues to light in our everyday conversations and, and really like be willing to talk about things that are difficult with each other um, and that need to be addressed. And I think that that is where change begins to happen. So what I'm hearing, which I think is really important here, is that you doing that and normalizing it for other people, you can just normalize this more sustainable behavior. Absolutely. And so, and so you're saying that by doing it, you can, you can kind of remake the world in a different image a little bit at a time and that that works hand in hand with these larger regulatory changes and kind of political ones. Yep, totally. And, and I think that normalizing this kind of behavior allows us to ask for the next thing. So yes, making individual changes does matter, but not for the simple reasons you might think. I was really inspired by the young people I talked with. In my view, they were experimenting with alternative futures, trying out lifestyles and habits that, if they become part of mainstream culture, do move us closer to carbon neutrality, and also give us an idea of what that carbon neutral future might look like. From that perspective, the most useful part of decreasing your carbon footprint is not actually what you give up. Plastic bags, fast fashion, car trips. It's what you do instead. It's the creative new behaviors you develop and share with others as you work out how to meet your needs and enjoy your life at the same time. If this is true, why protest? Why demand regulatory changes to reduce emissions from energy producers, manufacturers, agribusiness, and other large companies? Why demand the government fund infrastructure changes? It's related to that issue of scale. Once young people realize the sheer size of the climate problem, they understand that individual behavior changes cannot solve it. So many of them start looking for ways to influence greenhouse gas emissions on a bigger scale. For a lot of people, this means participating in protests. Zoriana, who lives in San Francisco, takes part in activism that she learns about online through the Sunrise Movement. I get their emails, and that's how I help kind of organize students at my school to go to the marches and um I'm on the slack channel do you know what slack is yep <laughs> despite being 47 I do <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really great um all the people there really are trying to make a difference and they're really smart about it too um they have all these um things you can use like um presentations about climate change just ready Sunrise has over 400 hubs across the U.S. and describes itself as, quote, a youth movement to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process, end quote. Sunrise advocates strongly for reducing greenhouse gas emissions by quickly reducing our reliance on fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas. They want the government to use tax money to fund infrastructure improvements that will then help us reduce our use on fossil fuels and prepare for anticipated climate changes. In other words, mitigation and adaptation. Sunrise helped organize people to take part in the Sacramento climate strike, as well as many of the others across the country. Quite a few of the young people I met were familiar with these strikes. For example, Domingo took part in a strike in his town of Watsonville. My school, we actually had a climate change protest, and we all walked out of the class, and um, we just 
went in front of our school and protested. And uh, we were we were in the newspaper. So so I guess it was it was very um, empowering because we all helped. We all made signs and um, went out and just and cars were honking and stuff and supporting us. So it was it was cool. Fundamentally, this is what protests are about. Protesters occupy public space with their bodies and with their voices to raise awareness about an issue. In person and on TV and online, they show both politicians and other people that there's an engaged community that's willing and able to mobilize around a particular issue. And for some, participating in a protest can feel extremely empowering. But it's not always quite that simple. Vince in Santa Cruz also took part in a 2019 climate strike, but he felt a little differently about the experience. It seems like it didn't accomplish much, unfortunately. What do you think is the purpose of marching like that? I think it's to raise awareness and kind of force people to confront it. Like, you can't really avoid it when it's just, like, marching on the street. In U.S. history class, you probably learn about Brown v. Board of Education and school desegregation in 1954. You might learn about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But you usually don't hear in detail about the thousands of small meetings people held to raise awareness, or the countless protests in town after town after town, or the thousands of hours activists spent registering African-American voters. There just isn't necessarily time. In class, you might see some footage of protest marches on Monday, and then by Friday you're learning about major federal legislation. And I think that inadvertently gives students a false impression of how social change happens. In reality, each individual protest is a tiny piece of a process that takes years or decades or centuries, depending upon what it is. Some people, like Domingo, are energized and motivated by protesting. Others may enjoy it in the moment, but then afterward, like Vince, could find it frustrating and demoralizing and wonder what it was for. So what can you do that isn't a protest? Or maybe better to ask, what can you do in addition to protesting? How do people fight climate change in ways that feel meaningful when the overall problem is so huge? We're going to end the episode with some voices from people who I think help answer these questions. First up is Brooke. See, also my freshman year, my science class, my bio class, we made a radio ad that we put on one of our local radio stations, the Sierra Wave. And they were talking about how uh, climate change affects our water kind of type thing. It was a really cheesy little public service announcement ad thing on the, on the radio, but it was so cool. We were all like really nervous about it and everything else, but it was such a cool thing to do. Um, our teacher... She really helped us a lot with it. We wrote the script and what we were going to talk about exactly and who was going to talk when and stuff like that. But she just kind of helped us to tell us how long we have, uh, what are the main points we have to at least bring up. But she kind of like she made little tweaks here and there to our script. But otherwise, we did everything by ourselves. And so was that a, do you know if that was a project she did every year or was it special for your class? Uh, I know that the radio part was special. It was the first time a class of hers has done a ra- done anything on the radio. We wanted to do a public service announcement. 
but we didn't know how. We were thinking flyers, posters. We were thinking, considering doing a podcast, but our principal brought up that um, he could probably get us, you know, on the radio with Sierra Wave. And some of us were kind of iffy and stuff like that, well, because we're really shy and never done anything like that. But we took the chance and we did it and we put our voices out there. So at least, you know, we had time set for when our our little ad was on throughout a week or so. So it was really cool. And so did it make you feel um, like less helpless or hopeless about it because you were able to actually do something? Yeah, it did help a little bit. Um, I wish they would have kept it on there a lot longer, especially for like, you know, people that run through here and they change the radio station. They'd be like, oh, a group of kids is talking about climate change and how water and stuff like that. Like, would they know about this? You know, maybe it's like, some people were like, oh, they're just kids. They don't know what they're talking about. But there's some people that be like, kids are actually trying to get involved. That's that's really cool. And they'll actually sit there and they'll listen and maybe they'll learn something new. Brooke and her classmates were trying to educate both their community and the tourists who come through their town on their way to vacations in the Sierras. But it wasn't just a generic PSA. Brooke is a member of the Big Pine Paiute tribe in the Owens Valley, which is where Los Angeles gets a lot of its water from. The PSA focused on water because historical losses of water rates, combined with modern climate change, have already reduced water access in their community. When I met Diego, he was just coming from speaking at a climate change event at his local library. There, he had talked about the importance of major institutional change and shifting away from using fossil fuels. He told me that earlier in the year, he also participated in the student climate strike with classmates in his town of Chula Vista. And I also, and I even went to like a district council meeting like a month before that, uh, telling the district council to sort of approve of that climate strike to begin with. And they mentioned something about one of the district uh, management said, I didn't know there was so many students because there was like about half a dozen students that came. And like, I didn't know like so many students you know, cared so much because I assume like sort of six or seven students like came to a district council meeting at like five in the afternoon is a sort of rarity and not something that they see very often. So so you were there to ask them to like pass a resolution in favor of the student doing the climate strikes? Is that it? Yes, exactly. And how did they, did they vote in your favor or did they, were, were you talking in the open comments in the beginning so it wasn't on the agenda yet or were they there to do a vote on it? Uh, well, we spoke about why they should pass it, pass it and they voted unanimously for it. Oh, okay. So it was already on the agenda. On the agenda. And do you know how it got onto the agenda? I, I'm not sure. What I do know is that it was very late into agenda, like section queue or something and since they saw uh, all of us there like what I presume to be a large amount of students for a district meeting they moved it up to the agenda to be the first thing that they talk about or maybe like the second thing. Other students also made this transition from individual action to raising awareness to advocating for institutional change. Michaela, who lives in Windsor, was first influenced by social media messages about plastic straws, then had a pivotal experience doing a class project about the effect of plastics on climate change, 
And then next, she joined her school's environmental club. In the club, we have a bunch of subcommittees that focus on different, like, areas of duties. So we have, like, one subcommittee for lunch like uh, stuff and they focus on reducing the amount of waste that like the lunch area is having or like replacing the plastic um, juice boxes with like paper juice boxes and um, so we have subcommittees like that we have a garden one and then like I'm in a subcommittee called like local outreach and awareness so like we do all of this stuff like locally so we talk to all the local businesses like if we're doing something with businesses or um, we also have representatives on like different councils throughout the community that are doing like climate stuff I was also on another one that met at school during lunch which was full of like teachers and their whole goal was to work on a climate resolution that they were bringing to like the school board Each of the subcommittees Michaela described is engaged in institutional change on the local level, rather than trying to convince one person at a time to avoid plastic juice boxes, for example, they work to alter purchasing decisions at the school level or the district level. This way they could reduce plastic use by thousands of pieces each day instead of just one, two, three at a time. They also organize themselves to join committees set up by the local city government so that student voices are heard in many areas of local decision making. Every city in California actually has these kinds of committees and commissions, and they are generally open to people who are too young to vote. If you want to learn more about what they do and how you could get yourself onto one of them, keep an eye out for the episode about local government. Michaela's environmental club was fully developed by the time we spoke. Carissa in Delano had just founded an environmental club in her school when I met her. They were still trying to organize themselves. I think about us, like, just getting together and creating a bunch of different ideas of what we could do. And I know that maybe changing the air pollution is pretty hard, like, but I feel like we could actually like try to decrease it a little bit and make the air a little bit more better for us. Like hopefully like it's just maybe we could go and plant trees, like create more of a fresh air environment for us. Poor air quality is already a huge environmental problem in California's Central Valley, and climate change is expected to make the situation worse. Like Brooke, Carissa was beginning from her own experience and focusing on the effects of climate change in her own community. She also wanted to address some frustration she had about school. How do your teachers address climate change? And what do you like or not like about how they do it? I, I don't like that they don't address it. They don't really talk about it. And that was one of my ideas for the club, the environmental club that I created, because I want to be able to implement lessons of the environment into our um, daily um, classes so that we'd um, actually learn things. And not only like me, but everyone else, because we're, we're already in a bad environment itself. So it's better for them to know about it. Carissa wondered what Nancy might suggest in terms of activities for her group. If you're leading or starting an environmental club, you may find her ideas helpful as well. I do think it's important on some level to understand the mechanisms of climate change. And what I mean by that is is the physical science behind how climate change happens. Um, and, And I don't think that's, again, the most important thing, but I think it adds something to the conversation and to, to our own individual understanding. So something that um, Carissa's environmental club could do um, is uh, bring in a speaker or um, 
ask a science teacher on campus to give them a presentation about um, how and why climate change is happening. So that maybe is a first step. And then to think about, um, and it sounds like this environmental club um, is really awesome because they're thinking about all of the impacts that climate change could have. So they're not just thinking about the science, but they're thinking about like the social aspects of climate change in their communities. Um, so like think about who in your community is already doing climate change work. Um, who is there somebody in agriculture who is responding to changes that they're seeing every year? Are they planting different crops? Are the crops being planted at different times? Um, who can you talk to? Who can you bring in to that environmental club, um, you know, to, to discuss the issues that are happening in your local community? I think, I think those would be the directions that I would go. If you want to work for a better climate future, you've got a lot of options here. Making personal behavioral changes, establishing an environmental club, educating yourself about the science and about local issues, working toward institutional changes in your district, your school, your city, taking part in protests. Everyone comes to this work along a different path, and each person contributes different things based on their skills and their interests. We'll end the episode with Isha's story. She is a young activist working for climate justice. She lives in Oakland. Her story begins back in late 2017. I never felt connected to environmental issues or anything like that ever because it was painted as something that was very white and woo-woo and privileged. And I even though that's not really what it is or was, I didn't feel connected to that mainstream image of what it was. Even though she didn't see herself as an environmentalist, Isha was involved with a number of local groups focused on social justice issues. And through one of those communities, I was invited to an action targeting Phil Tagami, who is a very prominent developer in Oakland and who was and still is trying to build a coal terminal through West Oakland. And that proposed coal terminal would be two and a half miles away from where I live. And so at this action, it was my first, it, it was my first time doing anything climate or environmental related. It was also my first time doing direct action. We actually wound up having a face-to-face -face interaction with him in which I spoke up. And also that action was, was majority, if not all, middle and high school students of color. And that was something that I had never seen before and really challenged my perception of what this is and what this fight is and was. Um, and so from that, I was like, this is exactly where I want to be and what I want to be fighting for. And I want to make sure that other people know that that's what this is. This is about fighting for community. This is about fighting for racial and economic justice. This is about solidarity. Isha's neighborhood is located near the port of Oakland and surrounded by highways. West Oakland is historically Black. It's not wealthy. And because of air pollution, people in the neighborhood already suffer from double the rate of asthma as people elsewhere in the county. West Oakland residents die an average of seven years younger than people in wealthier neighborhoods in the Oakland Hills, just across town. Daily deliveries of coal to a terminal in their neighborhood would only make their health worse. Why should she 
and her neighbors live shorter, less healthy lives than other people. And so in this action, I, one, realized what environmental racism is, what it means, and how central it is to environmental injustice. And later, I put two and two together that because of these practices of environmental injustice, that's what has largely fueled climate change. In 2018, a few months after the action to oppose the West Oakland Coal Terminal, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, published a special report alerting the world to the importance of keeping global average temperature from increasing more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above 1850 levels. It clicked for me the urgency because AOC was saying, and this was also when Greta Thunberg first started getting popular, and they were all saying, we have 12 years. And I was like, what? Like, what? 12? Like, I've, I've been alive longer than that. Like, what? And so in that moment, it just clicked for me. Like, what is really going on? How much time we have to do it? And how much work there is to do? You may have heard this warning back in 2018 about how we only had 12 years left, and you might have wondered, until what? Many climate activists are calling for us to make significant changes to our energy systems to cut our CO2 emissions almost in half by 2030. And that's so that we can reach carbon neutrality no later than about 2050 or 2055. And that is so that we can keep global temperatures no more than 1.5 degrees above 1850 levels. This shift would require tremendous effort, the kind of effort the U.S. used when it geared up to fight World War II, for example. So how does a person inspired by environmental injustice in her own community then fight climate change? Isha and some fellow activists from the Campaign Against the Cold Terminal co-founded a climate justice organization. Youth vs. Apocalypse is a youth-led climate justice organization in the Bay Area. We are a group of mostly frontline or young people from frontline communities. Let's pause here. A frontline community is a community that experiences the first and the worst effects of climate change. They might live close to sea level or be in a place that is particularly vulnerable to heat, for example. But it's not just about their geographic location. Like West Oakland, frontline communities are often made up of Black, Indigenous, or other people of color. They are generally low-income communities with poor infrastructure. And in the United States, they were often formed as a result of racial housing segregation and unequal lending practices that lasted in different forms into the current century. So for all these historical reasons, they don't have the resources to respond to the effects of climate change. Back to Isha. Or young people from frontline communities who have declared that In order to solve the climate crisis, in order to stop climate change, we have to recognize that the basis for this crisis and for all the things that we're experiencing right now, the pandemic, the housing crisis, like all of these different things, is because at a fundamental level, our society does not value human beings and has been built on top of slave labor and white supremacy and colonialism, and greed, and all of these other things. And so from that, we have brought ourselves to the 
brink of mass extinction. And that's not an exaggeration. And so we've said that in order to really stop climate change, you have to recognize that the fight isn't just stopping deforestation or getting to zero greenhouse gas emissions. Those are important pieces of it. But really, it's about dismantling these destructive systems in which we live and recognizing that in order to live in a world free from climate catastrophe, that we have to create a sustainable way of living, which should be and has to be based in equity and justice. And in order to achieve that, we have to create a movement that is built on solidarity, that is led by people on the front lines, that listens to indigenous wisdom and ways of living and caring for the land. And that's how we're going to stop the climate crisis. Because if we just decide that we're going to use all of the systems that we already have to stop the crisis that was created because of these systems, let's say we do stop climate change. In 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to start seeing the exact same thing. And we're going to be in this perpetual state of creating crises, which we can't, isn't sustainable. We can't, humans can't exist that way. So we have to create a new system, a new way of existing. The vision Isha is outlining has many components, but at its core is the idea that no person is disposable, that allowing people and companies to profit by harming others is unjust, and that repeated injustice breeds crisis. Activists got the city of Oakland to ban the movement of coal through the town, but at the end of May 2020, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the city of Oakland's ban. Youth versus Apocalypse continues to work with a coalition of both activists and government partners in California, Utah, and Japan to try to stop the construction of the terminal. The developer has offered to use the lease to build a different type of terminal, if the city will agree to guarantee financing and reduce the rent. He says this is to make up for the revenue he loses by not shipping coal. Isha and the other activists ask why should it cost the city extra to avoid having its residents poisoned by coal dust? The fight is ongoing. After we talked about YVA, I asked Isha how the smoke from the fires of the last few years had affected her feelings about climate change. It felt like a little window into the future or into one possibility of the future which was scary and which also is how I kind of feel right now. And in these moments, I always kind of start off by feeling really like disempowered and kind of like just ready to give up. And then as time goes on and like, it just makes me realize that there is no way I can allow my world to be like that. And it makes me want to get up and wipe away my tears and take a deep breath and like continue to push for what's going on. And also knowing that every time something like that happens, more people understand the reality of what we're facing, which makes us stronger and makes us closer to getting something real done. I understand completely how scary 
this fight is and this moment in history is and how it seems almost impossible that we'll be able to avoid our impending doom. But all we have right now is hope and is each other. And so we have to use that to fight like hell to make sure that this isn't our reality and is not the reality for our children and our grandchildren. And I don't know about everybody else, but I would rather go down fighting than not doing anything. Thanks for listening. To learn more, check out the Future Imperfect webpage at calglobaled.org. You'll find a link to the State Climate Assessment Summary, plus lots of articles about the topics mentioned in this episode. Also, look for an episode about your specific region of the state. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible. Thank you.